Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host of The Last Symptom. Really glad that you can join me for this episode of the show. If you'll remember, last time we spoke, I had grand old plans to go into the backcountry for a great big epic backpacking trip. Well, I didn't get to go as I was planning to do. It was something that I had planned for a year, roughly a year and then for six months I began to really iron out the details of what the trip was going to look like and everything so planned for a year really intensely planning for it for six months now I've had uh, my gear out trying to decide what I was going to take with me in fact I had my pack already everything that I wanted to take everything I didn't want to take and uh, that week when I looked at the forecast the temperatures had dropped 20 to 30 degrees. So that changed everything. Um, you know, everything that I was planning on taking, the gear that I was planning on taking, for example, uh, I was going to take a, a down blanket, which compacts really small and, and nicely, takes up very little room in my pack, weighs next to nothing. That was going to be enough originally. But then the, when the temperatures dropped 30 degrees, and I imagined myself at two o'clock in the morning, uh, I realized that that, was, that just wasn't gonna cut it. I was gonna have to take something a little bit more substantial. So that's what I mean, that I had to undo everything that I had planned and packed in my pack and then uh, replace gear and, and those sorts of things. It was really disappointing to me. The way it worked out, it had to do with arrangements on my side, all right? So I was supposed to go with my buddy, Jeff. He's in the city, about an hour and a half, two hours north of me, waiting for me to come pick him up. The day comes, I load up the bacon. Uh, that's you know what I call the Jeep Wrangler that I drive. So I load up the bacon with my gear. I get or a Warner Orson, my dog, in the in the bacon with me. Start the engine, sitting in my driveway. I send my friend uh, Jeff a message. I say, "Hey, buddy, I'm I'm pulling out of the driveway right now." And then I start getting some other messages, and uh, the messages that I was getting completely ruined my plans. I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do this trip, and I was sitting there trying to come up with a solution because I'm thinking, "You you got to be kidding me! <laughs> you got to be kidding me! There's got to be a solution." That I can get this issue fixed and and still get up there and pick up old Jeffrey 
so that we can drive to the mountains. And there was no solution. And I was very disappointed. I can't tell you how disappointed I was. Um, I tell you, you're going to laugh about this, but it felt like a breakup is what it felt like. It felt like a divorce or something. It was that level of disappointment. And I remember I come back in once I realized I wasn't going to be able to go. And I just felt like that, like that enormous sadness and disappointment. Uh, whole thing shot. So I may still try to salvage this trip, but I won't be able to go with my buddy. And so if I do go, I'll be in the mountains in the mountains all by myself with maybe my dog. But I won't be able to go with my buddy. And uh, it was embarrassing too. I can't tell you how embarrassing it was. After I had just sent him that message, he's waiting on me. He's expecting me to come pick him up and we're going to take this big week-long trip i don't remember if i just said this or not but it was going to be five five nights and six days in the back country so it was a big commitment and you know he had set aside all that time and of course i had set aside all that time i thought i had all my arrangements in place and then to have to call him and tell him listen we're not going to be able to do this it was just very it was embarrassing it was really embarrassing i felt terrible about it having to cancel my plan uh, the plans on my friend at the very last minute like that who's waiting for me so if you're curious about how i deal with this sort of disappointment (laughs) like i said it was like somebody called and broke up with me i sat around for a real long time uh, in the bacon in my driveway with the engine still running I, I couldn't even get out I was that disappointed <laughs> that deflated I didn't even want to get out of my truck I sat around for a while I kept trying to figure out if there was any solution for it you know I didn't want to send him a message and say no I can't do this trip now him started unloading his stuff and making other plans and then me realize oh there's a solution to this so I just sat and waited for a while I tried to think through any possible solution I could think of and there there just wasn't none so after that how did I deal with my disappointment well I accepted my own responsibilities and failures in the thing Uh, that's an art it's not a pleasant art but it is an art are you able to do that when you're intensely disappointed with other people and the way things have turned out in, a, in any given situation, right? It is natural to want to point the finger, to want to look at the people who have let you down. But it's a real art to be able to turn that finger around and choose instead to consider your own failures in the thing. I'm, I'll just break it down for you. Uh, it had to do with my daughter's care while I was away. I thought I had iron firm arrangements in place for my daughter while I was going to be away. And it turned out that uh, the folks that uh, I had lined up for her care, people I trust, uh, something come up in their lives. And so at the very last minute, they weren't going to be able to, to look after my daughter. That's what I mean when I say it's very tempting to say, gosh, they let me down. They let me down. I'm never going to trust them again. This is all their fault. The art comes in, where the art of the whole thing comes in, is me turning that finger around and saying, all right, why didn't you have a backup, Barnett? 
Why didn't you have a backup? Um, it's not their fault that something come up in their life. It can happen to anybody. So why didn't you plan for that possibility? You know, it's tough, these trips, because um, I do them in the during the week. And, you know, a lot of people got work and stuff like that going on during the week. So as tempting as it is to point the finger at at the people who let me down it i really let myself down is what it is and it's not their fault uh it's not their fault that they're people dealing with the normal issues that we all deal with in life it was my fault it was my fault that i did not have an alternative lined up just in case so you know um i learned from that this is a really nice life lesson for for me but also for you because I share my life lessons with you, right? It's a nice life lesson for me, and it's a nice life lesson for you. It's a nice life lesson in general. Number one, resist the urge to point the finger at other people. Try to always point the finger at yourself first and uh, your own failures. What did you fail to do that could have made the situation different. I sat around for a short while accepting my own responsibility and my own failures. Still felt like a breakup and I was still very sad about it, but that's what it did. The fact is, is that there was more I could have done to ensure that things would go off without a hitch and I just didn't live up to that. So then I sat around thinking about, well, what could I have done differently? What will I do differently in the future? Again, I resisted urges to point the finger at others. And I reminded myself that I'm an adult. I'm an adult free agent. Everything goes wrong in my life. It's up to me. Everything goes right in my life. I get to take credit for it. But it's not just a one-way street there. I mean, what I'm saying is that I can't just accept all the good and positive and not be willing to accept the negative too. Nobody else is responsible for my failures. So I had to sit and marinate in that for a little bit. How do you think that felt? <laughs> to sit and marinate in the, in the reality that nobody else is responsible for my failures. Well, it's not pleasant, but I'll tell you. Reminds me of a saying I heard back when I was old, in my 20s or something. I didn't understand it then. I understand it now. Uh, that children take pleasure in the pursuit of pleasure adults take pleasure in the fulfillment of responsibility well you know you can break that down and also say that adults take pleasure in the in in identifying what their true responsibilities are and accepting them even if we fail at them because if you if you can do that even if you fail at a responsibility the beautiful thing about it is you can evaluate the situation and say, okay, well, how will I avoid that in the future? Right? It's a beautiful thing. How else did I spend that day? Well, I uh, brought my backpack back inside and I looked at the ways that I could lighten it even more by getting rid of some of the luxury items that I had packed in there, get rid of the luxury items, take only the necessity items. I said to myself, this is life. There's a reason why the expression, the best laid plans of mice and men, 
exists. We have real limits, you know. Of course I didn't line up an alternative to my daughter's care because why would I? I assumed that things would go off without a hitch. It did not occur to me, well, what if uh, something happens, comes up in these people's lives? Why didn't it occur to me? Because I'm, I'm a human. I can't possibly prepare for every single eventuality. And it just, it just seemed that, you know, that, that sort of thing seems so unlikely anyway that you, it's human to not plan in advance for, well, they're going to cancel on me. They're not going to be able to follow through. These are trustworthy people, by the way. The person who is going to take care of her is somebody, she's the one who uh, potty trained my daughter, the Mexican lady. I don't know if you remember, my daughter loved her when she was three. I was trying to get her to poop in the, in the commode. She wouldn't do it for me. My daughter loves me to death, but I still could not get her to poop in the commode. And then this Mexican lady, I don't know, gave her like a taco or something. Next thing you know, my daughter's like <laughs> doing it and getting presents and praise and all sorts of things. Yeah, that, that burned a little bit. But I was very, very proud of her first poop. I still got the picture, and I still think I'm going <laughs> to... Try to try to find a tasteful way to um, commemorate that in, in a picture or something. Anyway, it was it was that friend. My daughter loves her to death, so no, nothing bad about them. I'm just saying that as a human being, there's just no possible way I could have possibly foresaw that that was going to happen. So a little bit of that too, a little bit of acceptance of uh, my limits as a person, right? No matter how wise and prepared. A person thinks they are we just have limits we just have real limits so eventually I went in I started watching the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard court case going on the the old television and uh, I think YouTube is broadcasting that live every day this m may sound crazy to you folks most of you folks but I you got to keep in mind that I've got a, a large international audience so I'm going to just tell you who Johnny Depp is. He's a big, famous movie star here in the United States. He uh, played Captain Jack Sparrow in Pirates of the Caribbean. So that's who he is, and I, I've been watching that. That's what I did that day. I come in from the bacon, brought my gear inside, played around with it a little bit, watched some of the Johnny Depp stuff. Anyway, I just thought I'd share that. That disappointing day that I had. And you know, I, like I say, I'm going to try to salvage that trip. I, I really want to get out there to where I had planned to go. Uh, but it's going to look a lot different. <laughs> and I'm probably going to be all by myself. So uh, we'll see how that goes. I'll keep you guys up to date. And of course, hope hoping to film lots of cool stuff while I do that. Hey, before we go on... What I wanted to tell you was that after a couple of the recent shows, I got some people who wrote some things and uh, asked some questions, and I thought it was worth uh, answering their questions and also answering the questions for you. If you'll remember, about a month ago, we did an episode about Will Smith, and during that episode, I had referred to him as a worthless individual. Somebody 
pointed that out to me. Here's what they said. They said, uh, one moment in the podcast episode did give me pause. It was when you used the word worthless. I forget the exact context, and I didn't see it skimming the show notes. So maybe I'm mistaken. It's my understanding from the rest of your work, Brian, that no amount of emotional ill health can make a person worthless. I'm so glad that she mentioned this. She mentioned this on the lastsymptom.locals.com, our online community. The reason why is because when I was recording that show about Will Smith, and I said that, in the back of my mind, I can remember it as clear as day, that when I said that during that recording, uh, I had this thought that went through my head that said, that's going to catch some people off guard. I'm, you're going to have to explain that later on, Barnett. And uh, and then I just kept going. That person did catch it, brought it to my attention, and here's what I wanted to say about it. This is what I said to her as a response. As far as Will Smith being worthless, my exact wording for that was something like, he is currently a worthless individual. I think I, I said... Uh, this guy who is currently a worthless individual, something like that. I very specifically worded it currently for a reason. An inherent truth, now think about this, an inherent truth can't come and go, be true currently, but not true later. So by adding currently, this man who is currently a worthless individual, what am I saying? Well, what I'm saying is that I'm not talking about an inherent quality of his. In other words, he himself is not worthless as a person. It's just that his current choices are making him worthless. right? So it was not a commentary about anything inherent about Will Smith. I very specifically put that in there to emphasize the fact that it's his choices right now that are making him into a worthless individual. He can change it. Uh, he just has to do the work to identify, you know, what 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 is allowing him to, to be this way. So let me just reiterate that. A currently worthless individual. An inherent truth can't come and go, be true one second and not true the next second. So again, nobody is inherently worthless. I'm not saying that Will Smith is just, that that defines him as a person. I'm saying it defines him in this period of time based on his choices. It's not an inherent reality about him. It's a reality based on, uh, you know, superficial things, like his choices, uh, the way he's choosing to live, his attitudes, the attitudes he's living with. The fact that I'm describing him as currently worthless means that I'm not making a commentary about his inherent state as a person. Rather, I'm more superficially commenting on current realities related to his behaviors and his attitudes. All right, so I hope that clears that up. Again, very astute of that person to catch that and and bring it to my attention. I'm not kidding when I say, when I was recording that, and I said it, I thought, this could be confusing for my audience because they're so used to me talking about how people are not worthless. 
when I say people aren't worthless, nobody's worthless, we're talking about inherent realities. You're not, you know, what you are as a person cannot be worthless. There's no such thing as an inherently worthless person. Can we do worthless things? Yes. If based on our choices, based on our attitudes, based on our behaviors, we can do lots of worthless things that make us worthless as far as, um, you know, how good of a husband are you? <laughs> how good of a husband you are depends on how you behave as a husband, right? Your attitudes as a husband. Is that a reflection on you as a person, on what you just are? You're a person? No, we're talking about two different things there. We're talking about inherent value, the inherent value you have because of what you are, a person. As a person, you can take on many different crowns, right? You can become a husband, you can become a dad, you can be a teacher, you can be a, a mechanic. Your value as a mechanic, as a father, as a husband, these depend on your performance and the attitudes that you live with in regard to those things. Think about that. that is, uh, that's a really nice moment to stop and think about that for a second. Do you have a choice about whether or not you're a human being? You have no choice in that, do you? You can't change that even if you want to. Even if you want to change the fact that you're a human being, you can't. Can you change the fact of whether or not you're a husband? Sure you can. You can never get married or you can get a divorce. You have a choice in that. Can you make a choice in whether or not you want to be a parent? Sure. You can choose never to have kids or never to adopt. Uh, can you choose uh, whether or not you want to be a mechanic? Yeah, you get to choose what your career path is going to be. But do you get to choose whether you're going to be a human being or a banana or a praying mantis or a saber-toothed tiger? We don't get to decide what we are inherently, you know, fundamentally. We don't get to decide what we are fundamentally. It's like saying that uh, if a tree wants to be a flower, well, tough. The tree is stuck being a tree. Nothing fundamentally changes from what it is. You're born a human being. Uh, that's what you are. You, you can't face a more inherent truth than that. What you are. So that's something to think about too, you know. Um, separating those things in your mind. Like, you do you conflate being a, a mother with being a human being? Well, you have, you have a choice in one thing. Uh, you can be a mother one second. You cannot be a mother the next second if you have a child that dies, right? Um, but when we're talking about what you are as a, as a human being, you have no choice in it. It will never not be true until you die. But during your lifetime, there's no change in it. You, you have no control over that. It's like, it's like any other inherent thing, any other inherent truth, right? Fire is hot. Ice is cold. Ice can't choose not to be cold because if it does that, it's not ice. <laughs> Even if it could do that, I'm saying. You take that, that aspect of what makes ice, ice away, and it's not ice anymore. So that's 
the fundamental realities we're talking about. A person being a mechanic is not a fundamental reality. That is a superficial reality. The person right now is a mechanic. He doesn't always have to be a mechanic. He can, talking about my friend Jeff, he's a perfect example. He, um, he was a dental lab technician for the first, oh, I'm going to say 15 years after he got out of uh, school. So he had a lab right in his house, lived uh, in uh, Ashland, Kentucky. And what he did was that he was the one who was uh, making people's false teeth and stuff. So he was making teeth and he had the whole lab set up in his house and everything. It looked like that was going to be his career, career forever and ever and ever. But about 15 years into it, maybe 20 years into it, he decides he wants to be able to do something that's a little bit more mobile. Uh, he wasn't really enjoying the work that much. So he went back to school and then he become a teacher. Do you see how that then cannot be? That a job profession cannot represent inherent truths about you if you're able to choose something different. When we're talking, what we're talking about here, the things of real strength and value and power are our understanding and perceptions over inherent things. When we say, when we're talking about inherent truths related to you as a person, this doesn't even apply to you being a mother or a father. It's deeper than that. It's, it's more real than that. Because being a father or a mother uh, can come and go. But you being a human being can't come and go. You being a, a, t- a school teacher. Uh, this is why it's driving me crazy, man. When I was uh, doing those uh, dating apps, first thing everybody wants to talk about, what do you do for a living? In fact, it happens to me now on social media. People DM me, hey, how you doing? What's your name? Uh, what do you do for a living? I said, I don't really want to talk about what I do for a living. <sighs> why not? Because at one time, what I did for a living reflected so much on me, right? It was it reflected so many truths about me. It was so important to me. Maybe some of you identify with that. How much money am I making? What kind of car am I driving? Reflects so many truths on me. And then after recovery, after authentically recovering from my emotional disorder, I realized those things don't reflect any truths about me. They reflect no- nothing about me. At best, what they do is reflect a period of time in my life and the things I was interested in at that time. And it just reflects a period of time in my life. That's it. But it doesn't reflect inherent truths about me. So there's some dating advice. Stop asking people what they do for a living. It doesn't provide you with as much insight into who they are truly as individuals as you think it does. It can come and go. It can be uh, something that they're interested in today that they won't be interested in tomorrow. It can reflect uh, lots of different things. You know, just because just because a person is a lawyer right now does not mean that they love law and studying law. They might have become a lawyer for just purely 
reasons of material um, gain. Think about that. That reflects their reasons for going into law reflect more on them than them than the whether or not they're a lawyer or not if if you go into law simply because you want to drive a bmw and have a hot girlfriend compare that to the person who goes into law because they're fascinated with such structure that the human that human beings have come up with such a thing that can be studied so deeply and there's a balance to the whole thing Right? There's precedent to the whole thing. That's kind of fascinating to me. I, I'm not interested in law, but the more that I see, the more that I learn about law, the more I realize that there is an art to it. There is a, just like with emotional health, there is a theory to the whole thing that brings balance to everything. In law, law is like that, and I, I'm beginning to realize it, that every consideration there's like this whole system of checks and balances that when played out by good you know well-intentioned people with the right motivations who value and adhere to the principle the underlying principles of the whole thing there is balance to the whole thing it's not perfect because people aren't perfect and you got people doing that dance you know you got people dancing that dance but the theory of it all to get to that is is kind of a beautiful thing anyway i'm going off on a tangent here anyway that that was interesting to me uh i wanted to focus on that for a little bit you as a mechanic is something very superficial it does not describe fundamental inherent realities about you you as a person does you will always be a person got no choice in it can't change it it's just what you are that distinction matters all right next thing is this you folks watching on rumble and youtube i posted this uh meme a couple weeks ago here's what the meme says you folks who are watching uh can see that i'm holding it up but those of you who are just listening can't so here's what it says this was taken from the last Simpsons podcast, season two, episode thirty-six. I said nothing, and nobody else can define us or determine realities about we ourselves. Only we define our own selves. Other people's opinion of you can only reflect realities about them. It is impossible for their opinion. To reflect realities about you only your opinions can reflect realities about you again I got a comment on this that I wanted to respond to somebody said to me well wait a second if you're God fearing what about God does God's opinion of you not reflect realities about you? What mistake are they making? What mistake are they making with that question? It's a good question, by the way. I'm not uh, discouraging that sort of question. It's a perfect question. The mistake they're making is in confusing what uh, uh, one reflecting realities about himself or herself is 
confusing that with somebody who is the ultimate judge. So a person observing realities about you and reaching conclusions, judgments about you. Two different things entirely. So here's what I had to say to that person. I said God's opinion is God's opinion. What realities does God's opinion reflect? Let's put it this way. Upon whom does God's opinions reflect? God's opinions reflect upon God. We're talking about his opinions, realities about him, what he likes, what he doesn't like. These reflect realities upon him. This is different than him making an observation and passing a judgment. God's opinions are God's opinions. They, they reflect, they allow us to get to understand who he, who he is, right? But I have free will. And I can share that opinion or I can't. That's, so then I went on to say, you, you might share his opinions or you might not. That reflects upon you. But let's not get two entirely different things confused here. Number one, the things you do and the things you are being reflective upon only you. Number two, God being the ultimate judge in any given thing. So... There is a difference between when we talk about other people having opinions about you and God having an opinion about you. Because God's not limited by having to guess who you are and what's in your heart. He knows all things. He's the ultimate authority on anything and everything. In fact, the Bible describes him as knowing us better than we know ourselves. Furthermore, He's the ultimate authority in everything. He sets the standards for what is good and what is bad. You know, around here in last symptom land, we don't talk about good and bad usually. We do sometimes uh, in, a, in rare circumstances, but mostly we're talking about what's, what's healthy and what's unhealthy. But once you start getting into a discussion about what's good and bad, uh, God's the ultimate authority on that. Even governments can say that a thing is bad that God considers good, and vice versa. God also, uh, being the supreme being, being the ultimate judge in anything, and being able to read people's hearts and intentions, it's him that gets to say that this is the quality I'm looking for in people to classify them as good or bad. This is the context I want to set that in. You know, so there were people who did terrible things in the past who uh, God considered to look at upon favorably. We've talked about that in the past, about how it's not, it's very rarely the thing itself that can be classified as good or bad. Um, context plays into it as well, as well as intentions and stuff like that. By God applying context to each individual circumstance, his expectations are always fair. What's that mean? What's it mean that God's expectations are always fair by him applying context? Well, what it means is this, that God never expects things of us that fall outside the realm of what we're capable of. So given our, given our specific personal circumstances. So for example, 
if I'm insane, literally my brain is malfunctioning. I, it's malfunctioning. I can't think straight. It's not that I just, uh, I'm just not trying hard enough. It's that my brain is malfunctioning. I'm incapable of thinking straight. So if I'm insane and I do something, that's shocking. This is, I'm not being weighed the same as somebody who is not insane, who is capable of thinking clearly, but is doing the same atrocity. So that's what I mean about context and not being um, held to things that are beyond your capabilities. Uh, God doesn't expect us, for example, to fly to Neptune every Sunday and uh, eat glass in order to uh, be friends with him. He looks at our individual circumstances. He says, do your best. And in fact, that's, that's it. It's do your best. Do your very best. But too many people take that and say, well, I'll do what I'm willing to do and say that that's my best. Too many people say, well, I was just born this way, so that's my best. Uh, that's not honest. That's not honest. And again, I'm not the judge of anybody, but I'll tell you in my personal circumstances, the, these are considerations that I take into mind. I say to myself, it, because something's hard, because I, I found myself in circumstances that I didn't want, and things are hard is that enough for me to um, not care or to, to, to do anything anything I want and the, the, the answer is no the answer is no that that's not a good enough reason because what else is being taken into consideration my intent my heart condition you know my my genuineness or my lack of it so these are all things that get taken put into context. But if I'm literally incapable of doing a thing and I can identify that, yes, I am literally incapable of doing that thing, then there's no reason for me to walk around with a guilty conscience. The, you know, that's another thing to write down. There, there is absolutely no reason to walk around with a guilty conscience over things that you are literally incapable of doing. Remember, incapable means that um, it's beyond it's beyond your um, your capacities as a person to do. That again, that example of the person who is uh, mentally insane, their brain is malfunctioning. They are literally incapable, meaning they couldn't even if they wanted to think straight. The very thing that they would use to think straight is not operating correctly so they're going to um, you know working in the hospital for example I, I think I told this story a while back but I'll tell it again I was working with this feller who uh, had damaged his frontal lobe when you damage your frontal lobe what that does is that it, it takes away all your inhibitions so if you get an idea if an idea pops in your head to do something you just do it we were walking through, uh, we were doing uh, physical therapy. I can't remember if it was physical therapy or occupational therapy. We were walking through the hospital there. Me, the therapist, this guy with the damage to the frontal lobe. And there was a guy on a, on a ladder, a big tall ladder. And he, his feet were sticking out of the ceiling of the hospital. He was up in the ceiling 
doing some kind of work. And we walked by that ladder. And that guy, with the damage to the frontal lobe, reached out, laughing to himself like it was just the funniest thing in the world, and grabbed a hold of that guy's ladder and just started shaking it like this. And the guy fell off the ladder but he's he's holding up inside the the roof inside the ceiling so that he don't fall down and his legs were dangling and whoa whoa hey what's going on and we had to stop that guy and put the ladder back so that the guy could get on there and the patient who had the damage to the frontal lobe did not understand that what he had just done was something that you don't that's not not nice to do he, it did not even occur to him. So that's the th- sort of thing I'm talking about. Him doing that to the guy on the ladder who could have fallen from the roof and hurt himself. That you know, Do you understand that, that because the guy is incapable, his, his frontal lobe is damaged, because he's incapable of um, controlling his inhibitions, do you understand that that, that is not weighed in the same severity as if I had done it, right? Somebody with a frontal lobe that operates perfectly well. Can you imagine the therapist, the Spanish-speaking patient, and me, the interpreter, walking by, and I'm just interpreting along, interpreting along, and we come to that ladder. Can you imagine me just reaching out? (laughs) That's hilarious. I'd have lost my job. I would have lost my job. That's that's the type of thing I'm talking about. Two, two things, uh, one person capable, another person not capable of a thing. The person who's incapable cannot be weighed in the same, on the same scales as the person who is capable. Back to this judgment, you know, an ultimate authority judging the choices that you make and everything being different from you can only reflect realities about yourself to say that God's opinion of you is definitive is not at all the same conversation as talking about you know your college professor's opinions about you or going to the grocery store and bumping into somebody and their opinion of you now, God is not limited by trying to guess who you are and what your heart condition is and all the and all of the uh, the context and circumstances in your life. God is not limited by those things. So God still only, things that God likes, things God does, these only reflect truths about God. But that's not the same as him looking at your choices and making judgments about those choices. Those aren't opinions, those reflect truths. This is different than your fellow man observing you and and making, uh, coming to conclusions, right? Your fellow man doesn't know and cannot know and cannot put into context every single circumstance in your life. Only God can do that. But even when he does that, this is not his opinion. This is not what just God thinks about you. He's able to observe the thing in its entirety and make a judgment. That's much, much different than the physical reality we're dealing with here among other human beings. Only your opinions can reflect upon you among all of the human opinions that exist out there. Their opinions can only reflect truths about them, and your opinions can only reflect truths about you. Do they align 
with God's opinions? Well, they might or they might not. Um, and there's a lot of context to be considered there, too. Have you just not learned enough yet? God takes that into consideration. What's more important to him is your sincerity, your motivation for caring at all. Are you just worried about not having, you know, the eternal life? Or do you really think about him? Are you really grateful for it, to him for the things that you that he's already done for you? The fact that you can breathe and see a sunrise and a sunset and share some time with friends. You know, truly everything that we have, we we owe to him. Let's talk about the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial for a little bit. Hate to talk about it because everybody else is talking about it. And that's to be expected and understood. You're probably sick of it. You're probably sick of every time you go on the uh, internet or watch or listen to a podcast or watch a show on YouTube of seeing people talk about it. And frankly, I don't want to turn the last symptom into a show where we just uh, analyze movie stars and that sort of thing. You know, just a month ago we did Will Smith, and then I think a couple weeks before that. We did the model, the famous model from New York who committed suicide. So I don't really want to turn it into that type of show, but I will tell you, I've been watching it with great interest uh, because there's so much, so many good things to be drawn from this whole Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. For those of you who don't know, those of you who live outside the States, um, you know, because I have a I have a huge audience of people outside the states. Um, Johnny Depp is Jack, uh, Captain Jack Sparrow from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. A big movie star here, and he's suing his uh, ex-wife Amber Heard for defamation. So they've been broadcasting the trial here in the United States on YouTube live every day and I've been trying to catch it every day we'll probably do a standalone show for this because there's just too many good things to talk about a couple things here real quick that stood out to me was when uh, Johnny Depp was talking about his mom and dad he was on the stand they were interviewing him they were asking about him, his dad his home life growing up uh, they inter- even interviewed his sister. I'll tell you, it was like, what a pattern. What a pattern. What a predictable pattern. You know, it's been a while since I've talked about emotional disorders as a um, an emotional algorithm, but they're so predictable. They are so predictable. And he hit every note. <laughs> it gets to be like an echo in my line of work, talking to people, and they just they just I don't know how to describe it they, they they just fall right into a mold I did it too I'm not just talking about you folks I did it too fell right into a mold and <laughs> that's the mold um, what I mean is that it's not just the folks I talk to the reason why I recognize what the, the mold that the folks I talk to are falling into is because I was in that mold 
I escaped that mold, and now I'm turning around and looking back at, at other folks who are falling into that same mold. They just, it's like they come out of a cupcake pan. You know, you bake cupcakes or you bake a pan, whatever the shape of that bread pan is, comes out of the oven, that's what you got. And that's, that's what happens to people too. You put them in certain circumstances and you provide them the right message, the right, the right uh, unhealthy messaging, that's the bread pan. When they come out of the oven, they just are what they are. And it's incredible, an emotional algorithm. It's fascinating. It is fascinating that that people are so predictable. That if it what's like is it? Uh, did you know that if you take a tree, for example, when it's a sapling, and um, you tie it and you lean it a certain way, and you let it grow for a little bit like that, you can take the ropes off and the tree will just grow that way. People are like that when we're young. And our circumstances do that to us. They they point us in a certain direction. You take those binds off. People continue growing that way. They And all people deal with things in similar ways. That's the whole reason why you've got borderline personality disorder, narcissism, and stuff like that. There are There is some room for individuality, but... Uh, basically people are there's only like four different types of ways that people will try to learn to cope with the same pain and that's what you get so Johnny Depp was talking about his mom and dad and here's what he did let's see if this is surprising to you he described his when he was on the stand described his mom as being terribly abusive but he described his father as being unusually calm and loving when I was watching this testimony from him and he's describing his mom as being the abuser being very physically abusive and everything like this and and then they were asking him questions about his dad you could see his whole demeanor change he went from my mom was mean and abusive you could see when they go to talking about dad the affection come in the affection comes in and Johnny Depp is now feeling affection for his father. Didn't feel it for his mother, but feeling it for his his father. Now, of course, he does feel some affection for his abusive mom. But what I'm saying is that Johnny Depp makes the same mistake that everybody makes who is coming out of him. Let me reword that. I don't believe Johnny Depp is coming out of emotional unhealth. I think Johnny Depp is emotionally unhealthy. I don't think he's even begun to explore the possibility that he is. In any genuine way. Clearly he's had people talk to him, therapists and stuff like that, but he has not reached a point in his life yet. This is my observation, alright, I'm not state just just take it for granted that throughout this whole thing I'm not assuming to state truths about Johnny Depp. I don't know him. These are just observations based on what I um, am observing. <laughs> I have to say that. He, <laughs> the whole court case is about him suing for defamation. I don't want to fall into that. So, so we know the guy will do it. But my observation is that uh, he's never been 
forced into a situation where he's really had to to try to get to the bottom of some of these things why did why did he choose to be with Amber Heard why did it seem like a good idea to him why didn't he pay attention to the warning signs through their long courtship and say oh that doesn't feel very comfortable to me that doesn't feel very right well there's only one reason why because it did feel comfortable to him <laughs> it felt familiar that's why that's why it was so on fire at the beginning right there was why the emotions were so you know the sex was probably great it was probably exciting probably felt great why because it felt familiar to him why there's, there's the why exercise because of his past why we're drawn to what feels familiar to us it's kind of disgusting if you think about it it is it's kind of gross because we're choosing our lovers and getting horny and excited and our hormones getting lit up in sexual ways based on the familiarity of what we saw between our parents isn't that kind of twisted it is kind of twisted so if you need some motivation to escape that that might have done it for you so Depp talking about his mom as being abusive goes to his dad his dad he just painting a picture of his dad in just the most beautiful light like this man was so calm and he just sat there and took it from his mother and everything like this and he was a such a a laid-back man now what have we talked about in the past about this it would have cut to the chase there's never such thing as two parents and only one of them is being the abuser there's all sorts of examples of one of them being blatant about the abuse and the other being secretive and coy about it and that's what's going on here never two parents and just one abuser to illustrate this what I'd like you to think about is a bank robbery that's that's happening right now there's a bank robbery happening right now there are people who have run inside of a bank with ski masks and guns Okay, you picturing that? Get on the ground! Get on the ground! Shut up! Kicking people, pointing guns in their faces. Get all the money! I want you to get the money! Can you picture that? The violence going on inside the bank. Can you picture that? Shut up! I am not talking to you! Get off your phone! Put the gun down! I'll kill you! I'll kill you! That seems pretty violent, right? And scary. Now I want you to think about the driver. The driver. He's sitting in the car outside on the curb waiting for the bank robbers to come out so he can drive them off. Now, the driver, is he actually inside the bank? Is he actually sticking guns in people's faces? Is he kicking anybody? Is he talking mean to anybody? 
No, he's not. But is he part of the bank robbery? Yeah, of course he is. Of course he is. Do you understand that the people inside the bank kicking people and shoving guns in their faces and scaring the living daylights out of them can't do what they're doing without him, without knowing that he's out in the car waiting for them so that they can get away. Do you understand that? So even though he's not inside the bank, directly causing this extreme stress and fear, think about the mothers lying there on the floor in the bank, wondering if they're going to see their children again. Are they going to get home and have be able to enjoy another night of supper with their children? Even though he's not in there directly sticking the gun in the mom's face, he is part of it anyway. He's allowing this to happen. He, his contribution to the thing is making this it all possible at all. Do you understand that? So even though he, he's not pulling a gun on people, he's not inside the bank carrying out the bags of money, he is still part of the bank robbery. In fact, the bank robbery cannot occur without his contribution. Do you understand that? You say, well, all he did, all he did was sit in the car. He just sat in the car. But he's as much of the bank robbery, he's as much a part of the bank robbery as the people who went into the bank. Because in order for them to be able to rob the bank at all, those who go into the bank need him on their team. They need him. They need his contribution. They need his cooperation. They need his participation in order to be able to carry out the robbery at all. Child abuse is like that. Depp's father supported Depp's mom in ways to make her abuse possible at all. He was an adult and his mom was an adult and Depp and his uh, siblings were just children. The children didn't have any responsibility in it. And the parents can't say it was somebody else's fault. I'm making a note here because another thing just popped into my mind related to this. All right. So that's what child abuse is like. Most of us, we grow up, we have, because one person was harsh to us and another person was not harsh to us. We like to think of the person who was not harsh as the good person. And we take sympathy upon them. We, we think of, we put ourselves on a plane with them. We forget that we were only five, seven, ten, twelve. And we put ourselves on a plane with them. We're talking about full grown adults when we were not. Yet when we choose to th look at them and, and evaluate their responsibility, we, we put ourselves on a plane with them. So now, for example, I'm an, a grown man, 
it's tempting to look at my mother and go, oh, what she couldn't have done and what she was unable to do. And But you have to remember that you were not on a plane with them. You were a child. And they were not. They were full-grown adults. It's a, the mark of emotional disorder and emo, extreme emotional unhealth. For adults to appeal to their children in terms of uh, what they couldn't have done, what they weren't, shouldn't be responsible for, and everything. And the, the reality is that uh, this is manipulation and denial. You you know your mother or your father saying, "Well, what could I have done?" They're laying a question on you that they should have answered 40 years ago. Doesn't belong to you to answer it. Never belonged to you to answer it. Will never belong to you to answer it. It belongs to them. It was their responsibility to figure that out at the time. Um, they might have lots of reasons for why they didn't, but reasons are not ex uh, excuses when it comes to responsibility. I'd like to, for you to think of your parents as a bank robbery team. They're a team. Just like Johnny Depp's father was part of a team. There was the children team, and there was the parent team. Just like the driver of a bank robbery is a partner working in harmony with the actual people who go into the bank to rob the bank so that the bank robbery can occur at all. And therefore, the driver is a part of the overall team in support of the team's efforts. Depp's father was on the team enabling the abuse of his children. So it was very interesting to me to see Depp go right into the defense of his father, speaking of him in overwhelmingly positive, sympathetic terms, preferring only to paint him in a positive light. And then you know what it come out later in the uh, course of the trial? His father had once, had, had once uh, punched Johnny Depp right in the face. Now, think about that that Johnny Depp, throughout the whole trial, describes his father as, as the most calm and patient person he has ever met in his life. What do you think I was thinking while Depp's saying this? Well, know what I know, I was saying to myself, uh, Johnny Depp's in denial. He's in denial. <clears throat> his father's reaction to his mother might have been weak might have been very submissive that does not make him a person who's not abusive again I, I can't highlight enough of how much how true it is that just because a person is submissive and calm and uh, doesn't go around screaming and kicking things and all this stuff does not mean that they are not abusive they're contributing to the abuse. They're allowing it to ha The very nature of who they are, of how they are, is supporting it, right? If you're supporting a thing and, a, and enabling it to happen, you are as responsible and as abusive as the person who actually shoots the Jew. Now, I say that to be shocking, honestly, to be shocking as I can be. Because I want to snap you out of this idea that the calm, sweet person 
who is enabling a thing uh, only appears sweet. So if you think about like the Nazi concentration camps and the Jewish folks who died and suffered during that thing, were there people who um, contributed to that by being sweet and calm and nice to the Jews? Yes. Yes. Were they any less responsible because they were calm about their contribution to this holocaust? No. No. You know, so you folks who are hung up on this and you really you think about like one member of your parents as being good and the other person as being bad, it that's not the reality. They're both bad. As again, this is not an inherent statement about them as people. They can choose to do things different. They can redeem themselves by by caring enough to investigate what allowed them to contribute to that whole overall thing. If they do that, they, they redeem themselves. Right? So it's not a statement on their inherent nature. It's a, it's a statement of fact based on the reality of the fact that they that that you were abused for throughout your childhood. It it could not have happened with only one parent unless the other parent was deceased. That's the only that's the only time. So I hate, I hate to bring up the Holocaust and stuff like that into, into this because everybody on the internet loves to do that. But I've been listening to uh, Alan Dershowitz. Uh, uh, Dershowitz. I have a hard time pronouncing his last name. A lot on uh, Rumble. I've been watching his show. And of course the, the Holocaust comes up often because he's Jewish. And um, also I, I have an interest in the Holocaust because uh, members of of the religious faith that I that I subscribe to, uh, were also su- suffered a lot of persecution in the uh, in the Nazi concentration camps. So it's something that's always on my mind. If you think about uh, things in that, and it's something that can happen again, and it will happen again, because that's just <laughs> people. But if you think about parenting in those terms, you know, like if you, if if I'm if I'm doing anything at all to enable this, then then I'm a part of it. I'm a part of it, and that's that's what parenting is, right? Parenting is as long as I'm a part of it. Uh, if if I don't take my kids out of that those circumstances, or if I don't intervene, then I'm making it possible. I'm making it. Po- I'm making that happening possible, at all, and therefore I'm a part of a team. So it was fascinating to me when uh, Depp's father, or uh, yeah, it come out in the trial that uh, Depp's father had once punched him right in the face. Back when Depp was talking about his father and they were asking him all about this, it did not even occur to him to bring that up. Like that, mem- you could see the memory did not even come into his head. It wasn't like he was talking along. Oh, that time dad punched me in the teeth and uh, knocked me on my on my keister uh, don't say that that's not what happened what happened was that it that instance never even occurred to him why did it never even occur to him denial 
Because how does Johnny Depp prefer to think about his father? In positive ways. Here's the narrative in Johnny Depp's mind about his dad. My dad was calm and kind. He was my refuge. I could run to him when my mother was abusing me. Right? Because his dad was nice. Now, the memory of Johnny Depp's father punching him in, in the nose, does that, does that uh, support the narrative that Johnny Depp emotionally wants to believe? Or does it contradict the narrative that Johnny Depp's emotions want to believe? It contradicts it. So what does Johnny Depp do? Johnny Depp pushes it aside and says, that's not important. That's not important. Why isn't it important? Because it doesn't contribute to the narrative that his feelings are comfortable with. That's denial. It was remarkable. It was really remarkable that while they were doing that interview about his father, he only chose to talk about good things about his father. It was the defense that had to bring that up. And I'm imagining that uh, I'm just trying to connect dots, but I imagine that Johnny Depp and Amber Heard were lying around in bed one night after having some physical intimacy and got to talking and and maybe there was so you know some alcohol involved or something like that and and he let that go and shared it with her and she shared it with the lawyers so it's, she remembered it and he didn't when talking about his father and whether his father was abusive or not in the context of abuse it did not come into his mind why not well we just talked about it because the, it, it contradicts the narrative that his father is this kind, nice, gentle man. So uh, Depp takes all anything that contributes to that, all the memories that contribute to that, and he, and he puts it in that direction to support that. Anything that contradicts it, he rejects. But has it gone away? Well, not if my theory is correct. Because it's still inside of him. It's still bothering him, you see. If if my the way I imagine the thing played out of him telling Amber and Amber telling the lawyers is true. Because they're in this moment of uh, vulnerability of a night of wine or alcohol or drugs or whatever. They're lying there having this physical intimacy He's feeling like opening up to her. Why would why would he share that? Because it's something that still bothers him. It means something, and it contradicts the narrative that he wants to believe. Again, I that's the way I imagine it. But I'm just like a Sherlock Holmes trying to fill gaps based on what I know about emotional health and emotional unhealth, about emotionally healthy families and emotionally unhealthy families. Mostly I know about emotionally unhealthy families. And I know it real well. And I know me. And I know the times that I, that things have spilled out of me 
and the conditions required to make things like that spill out of me that I otherwise probably would not have shared. When I heard the testimony about his dad, I said, well, that's that's denial. Uh, first of all, he's in denial that his father, his father's the good guy, his mother's the bad guy, and he's separating it. He doesn't see the parents as a team. He's also not viewing himself as a child. He's not. He's also not remembering the thing properly in context, that he was a child, he wasn't responsible for this, and so both are equally responsible over him. He's viewing the thing as he is now. So he's an adult, she's an adult, he, the dad is an adult. That's how he's viewing the thing. He's viewing the thing from his current perspective. He's applying that context. Me as an adult, my mother, how was she? My father, how was he? In contrast with me now as an adult, that's the wrong contrast. The contrast is I was six or I was 10 or I was 12 and they were adult free agents and I wasn't. That's the true context. We don't do that. It's very strange. Well, it's not strange. It's, it's completely reasonable. But people like you, possibly, need people like me who have escaped that to help you escape it so that you're not applying the inappropriate context to these things for understanding. I did the same thing that uh, Johnny Depp did because my father was harsh and mean and my mother would always, I, I remember it every time, my father would just uh, beat the living daylights out of us emotionally and physically and then we were hurting and in pain and completely beat down and feeling worthless and my mother would take us into her arms and love on us here 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 come here it's okay it's all okay you th you know how sick is it that's th that's more disgusting to me than my father beating me up or making me feel worthless that is now it it wasn't for the first um you know 10 years i was working on this it is now i was a child my mother was an adult free agent she was the getaway driver for the bank robber <laughs> i'm I, i'm inside the bank my father comes in terrorizes me beats me up threatens my life with a gun ter you know, terrifies me ruins my sense of self-worth and then runs out to the getaway car who's driving the getaway car who is driving the getaway car the same woman later hugging me and telling me everything's going to be okay Is that starting to sink in? That's the true nature of child abuse and parents. There's never, there is never two parents and only one parent who is responsible. And 
the the real injustice is that the person who is who appears the most is that the person who appears the most abusive and who we on the surface dis, you know um, dislike the most the person who is the easiest to hate gets the most hate that's an injustice and I hate to say this because I love my mom I love my dad too but the person who would pretend like they are not a part of it when they are every bit a part of it and would later comfort you and say oh I'm so sorry that happened to you and it's okay it's everything's going to be okay and, and make you love her or him while at the same time being the person who is responsible for it happening to you at all to me that is much more disgusting based on my current understanding of the abuse that I suffered and and that was the thing that I took away from the whole Depp thing Depp and Amber Heard thing Depp defending his father loving his father not understanding just how much his father does not deserve that so yes his mother deserves all the uh, natural consequences of of her part in that you know his feelings toward dad and everything that that but that's easy that's easy you understand that that's so easy it's easy in a in the way that it, it requires no insight but once you gain insight and you realize wait a second Johnny Depp's dad is the one who was making all of that possible at all and yet getting all of this admiration from his son at the same time this undeserved admiration for years even after Johnny Depp was an adult it's disgusting it's absolutely disgusting. Johnny Depp referring to see his father as the good guy is denial. I did it too. Most of the people I talk to do it. But it's imperative to escape this denial. Begin looking at adult parents as if they are a team. They are a team. So it's an it's escaping this this delusional denial false understanding of reality that oh only one of my parents was uh, abusive to me no they were a team they were a team think about the bank robbery and the driver of the getaway car the folks robbing the bank can't do that without the drive without the getaway car driver <laughs> they depend on him for it he's contributing to it he knows he's contributing to it even if he's even if the getaway driver says to himself well I'm not I'm not as guilty as those people sticking guns in people's faces and terrorizing them even if he's if he's consoling himself that way it's baloney he is as responsible as the people sticking the guns in their face the people's faces because he is enabling it to happen at all they depend on him to be able to do what they're doing. The getaway driver is the worst. Regardless of all this, what is the uh, 
cause of emotional disorders? Is it just the person who mistreats us? Is it just behaviors? Is it the way somebody treats us? No. We've talked about this many, many times. Um, A thousand people will listen to this show and walk around with the wrong idea that it is the treatment that is the real thing that causes uh, emotional disorders. (laughs) Even after I say this next thing, it's not treatment that causes emotional disorders. It's attitudes. Do Johnny Depp's mother and father live with the same types of attitudes? Yes. What did I just say? Repeat it for me. What causes emotional disorders? Is it treatment? No, it's attitudes. It's people's under it's the parents' underlying attitudes. And even though I've just emphasized it, still a thousand of you will walk away thinking that I'm saying uh, that the way that Johnny Depp was treated is what matters. It's not what matters. It's the attitudes of his parents that he was observing. Treatment matters, but only in so much as it reflects attitudes. So that's, that's the mistake that children make who later grow up into adults. We, we think back to the treatment that we received, but it's not the treatment. The treatment is not relevant. What's relevant is the attitudes that allowed for it because we're exposed to those attitudes even when bad treatment is not happening, you see. Why did Johnny Depp's father allow Johnny Depp's mother to continue abusing her children because he lives with the same attitudes that says it's okay that it's not that bad then of course Johnny Depp's father left the family he said I can't do this no more he walked out one day Depp saw him he said oh my dad's going to work hey dad hi Johnny dad drove off didn't didn't, uh, let Johnny know he was doing it that he was leaving the family or anything like that. Depp goes on to visit his, his dad at work. Johnny says, uh, hey, dad, what's going on? His father says, yeah, it's true. I left your mother. I just can't take it no more. What did that reveal? Who did Johnny Depp's care, dad care most for? Well, let's put it this way. Who was Johnny Depp's dad living most for? His children? His children or himself? Did he make any arrangements to get his kids out of that environment? No, he didn't. So who was Johnny Depp's father living for mostly? Himself. Himself. So here's what we learn about Johnny Depp's family life growing up that his father cared mostly about himself. Saw no, you, you perceived himself as having no inherent responsibility for the well-being of his children. And who did Johnny Depp's mother live for primarily? For herself. In Johnny Depp's family, the children were just obstacles. They were just possessions. 
they they were not people and the parents were the these stunted children these adult children who had never grown up with any concept of responsibility or of individuality or of the value of feelings or of self and it's just uh, sickening it's really sickening uh, Depp's sister got up on the stand she's like well uh, they went to the funeral they went to their mom's funeral and they were like well why did you do that and she's well we, we love our mom you know that's the thing is that and that that's not that's not an unhealthy thing that's not an emotionally unhealthy thing <clears throat> that is hard baked into us to love people who don't love us when they're our parents even when they're our parents children will still continue to love their parents no matter what they do that is hard baked into us so that's not a reflection of you know his sister being emotionally unhealthy or anything she stated the truth she does love her mom I'm sure Johnny Depp loves his mom and dad but only because it's hard baked into us as people that type of love a, a love that children have for their parents um, doesn't have to be earned it's hard baked into us unfortunately so the thing the thing I made a note about earlier was that uh, Amber Heard at one point she's doing a pre-recorded thing they're asking her about why she got in between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's sister Amber Heard goes into this thing about how oh she's my sister I would have done anything to protect her we were at the top of the stairs she's my little sister she's my she continues to describe her sister as her baby sister to paint the idea that her sister is like six years old and Johnny Depp's about to kick the six-year-old down the stairs and it's so manipulative it's such a BPD thing because um, Amber Heard's sister at the time was a full-grown adult so that was interesting Amber Heard trying to frame this thing as like I I got in between them because I'm her big sister and I would have done anything to protect her and she's trying to gain all the sympathy from the whole uh, deposition there about why she got in between Johnny Depp and her sister she's leaving out the fact that her sister is a grown independent adult free agent completely grown woman can completely take care of herself is responsible for taking care of herself Amber Heard doesn't know it Amber Heard doesn't know it Amber Heard does not understand that once you become an adult you're responsible for yourself Amber Heard says talks about her like she's her mother the whole thing is just so fascinating really but we're way over time here and I uh, had some more things to talk about we're going to talk more about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp because we've only scratched the surface and this trial is not over yet so there's going to be more things that come out that I'm going to have observations about yeah so I wonder if you're watching it if you if you are you got some things you want to talk about join us over at thelastsymptom.locals.com that's my uh, online community for members of The Last Symptom we would love to have you over there like to get into it I'd like to get into a big discussion about this if if you folks are up to it 
Um, want to mention thelastsymptom.com. That's my website full of free and paid resources. You can schedule one-on-one phone conversations with me as well as uh, one-on-one Zoom video conferences with me. And also, uh, The Last Symptom Fundamentals course. It's a two-week intensive pre-recorded course that can help you uh, create the foundation you need to create and continue building upon to authentically and permanently escape emotional disorders once and for all. It's better than these other programs that people have out there. What else can I say about it? It's pre-recorded, so I mean it works with your schedule. And I say it's a two-week. A lot of people take it three weeks, four weeks, five weeks. It, it works with your schedule. You you pace it out the way you want to pace it out. So that's what I got, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining me. There were some more things I had to talk about, but as every week goes, uh, we we cram in what we can. And we save the rest for later. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me here this week. Hope you're enjoying the orange slices that appear daily, yeah, more or less daily, at uh, on the Last Symptom community over at Locals. Again, thelastsymptom.locals.com, or you can download the Locals.com app from the App Store and just search for The Last Symptom by Brian Barnett. Subscribe to The Last Symptom on Rumble and YouTube in addition to wherever else you listen to it. Folks, oh, uh, one last thing. You folks who listen on uh, Spotify, there was an issue. There was a technical issue with Spotify there for a couple weeks. So go back into the library. There might have been a couple episodes that you missed. Uh, I fixed the problem, so those episodes are there now. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.